This is from Isaiah 56. Uh, hopefully you can see it. If you want to follow along, um, we're using the ESV. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Um, So I first thought about this passage when we were going through a series on the church. And in Mark 11 and Matthew 22, there's this famous story of Jesus in the last week of his life going into Jerusalem, arriving in the temple, seeing all these people exchanging money at these tables, and basically taking advantage of poor people. He gets upset, flips the tables over. It's the angriest probably Jesus ever is in the, in the recorded history. And then he says, you have turned this place into a den of robbers. It should be a house of prayer. But then time kind of moved on uh, too fast, and then I didn't plan correctly, and so now we're in Advent. I was like, oh no, I'm not going to be able to preach this message. But oddly, in this season, it sheds even more light on what this phrase means. And we are in this weird in-between time. So for example, um, last week, Pastor Sam gave this great message where he talked about how his mom used to scrape him clean in the bathtub and make him look at the dirt. And he ended his message on Malachi talking about this prophecy for the future, the end of part one. And he compared it to the end of Avengers Infinity War. But that part two is not coming till next week. And so here I am, um, like uh, Ant-Man, just kind of waiting in the middle, waiting for things to go through. So we're in between in that way. In our personal lives, we are at December uh, 16th or something like that. We are almost there. And as Jen uh, told me this morning, we are barely going to make it to the end of the year. We are looking forward to this time where we get to sleep, where we get to rest, but there's these little driblets of like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or whatever to get through. And so we can taste freedom and rest and joy right over there, but we're stuck in this season. And even in the broader scale in our lives, I think we're in this in-between age. I'm a teacher, and every year as I teach a new group of students, we always come to the Um, question, oh, Dr. Kim, how old are you? And in years past, it's always like, oh, I don't know, late 20s, something like that. This year, somebody said, I don't know, you're 50? And then I was like, well, I'm I'm 40, but not 50. And so for the first time, I was like, oh, man, I'm not young, and I'm not old. I'm in the middle. And when somebody said I looked like I was 50, I was like, I got to 
like reevaluate the way I dress. I can't be looking like this and people thinking I'm 50. So we're in between, and now we are in this Advent season. We know Jesus is coming, but he hasn't arrived yet. We're not living in the full reality of that. And Isaiah, in this passage, is drawing our attention to this weird type of in-between time. If you look in verse 1, it says, Soon salvation will come. It's almost here, but it's not here yet. Three times he mentions the Sabbath and the importance of keeping the Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day of creation, and when we keep the Sabbath every single week, we are looking forward to this ultimate rest. And Isaiah himself in this passage is doing something interesting. His prophecy covers an entire range of history, and in the first half he is warning the people, if you do not get your act together, there will be exile. The kingdom of Judah will be conquered and the people will be taken to this other land. But the second half of the book talks about what happens 70 years later. They're eventually brought back into the land and it's not what they were expecting. And Isaiah 56 is the first chapter that addresses this. This reminds me of a Christmas I had when I was uh, probably like fifth grade. I was very much into guitar and I begged my father to get me a guitar amp so that I could play electric guitar I see a box, amp size, in the corner for a couple of weeks. And I was like, Dad, can I open it? He goes, no, do not open it or I'll return it. I go, okay, fine, I will not open it. Christmas Day comes. I open it up, and it is the amp that I had been looking for. But I was such a noob at this, and my dad is the most uh, unmusical person in the entire world. He didn't buy a cord to connect it. (laughs) And so I was like, Dad, it doesn't work. So I like cut two um, like earphone plugs and tried to like get them together and to get it to fit. But that's a quarter inch jack and those are eighth inch. I tried to like bring the guitar as close as I could to the amp to see if it could pick up some signal. So here I was waiting to use this thing that I had been dreaming of. We are in this weird in-between time and Israel is there expecting something grand. We have returned home. But this home is not what I thought it would be. And so what are we supposed to do living in this odd time? We're not quite old. We're not quite young. We're at the end of the year, but we're not there yet. We're waiting for Jesus, but he has not arrived yet. We are experiencing something that we've been promised, but it's not quite the things that we thought it would be. And in this passage, Isaiah tells us exactly what we should do. But he does it using some very weird and surprising characters. So with that, let's pray. And then we'll look at who these guys are. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time to pray. And it's so hard to um, meet with you because there's so many things that are in our brains and in our hearts that are like a fog or like a constant like white noise din or a distraction that makes us think about, I don't know, lunch or what's going on next or the things that we have to get done or the shopping that we got to do, or whatever. But God, this is your time, and we want to meet with you, and we just want to confess as we uh, get started that we can't do it on our own. So we just ask for the power of your Spirit to come, allow your Word to pierce into our, our hearts, and get us to a place where we long to be with you in prayer. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah is probably one of the most beautifully written books in the entire Bible. I would probably give it to either Psalms or Isaiah in terms of its imagery and metaphors. And he is a book, and it is a prophecy that talks about big things. It talks about the rise and the fall of nations. It talks about the coming Messiah. It talks about God's 
community and how it will expand. And it talks about grace and glory and the end of time. But in this passage, at this in-between time, he starts with these two minor characters that seem far away from the center. It's just like um, Star Wars. Star Wars is an intergalactic tale about the Empire and about rebels, about the Force, about this dynastic family called the Skywalkers. And how does it start? With two droids wandering around in the desert. So why is Isaiah making us look at these two minor characters and who are they? First of all, he tells us about a eunuch, and then he tells us about a foreigner. A eunuch is somebody who is physically deformed and is therefore no longer able to have children. And a foreigner is somebody who has not descended from Abraham. And you might think, oh, these are strange people to start this story with. Why is he asking us to look at them? Well, when we think about them, some of us might be able to relate relate with them pretty quickly. I think all of us um, have experienced or know people who have experienced difficulty um, getting pregnant and having a child, just like the eunuch was thinking about. And when you have that feeling, you're aware of all the pain and the frustration that comes along with it. Not only that, I think all of us probably know the feeling of what it's like, based off of the way you look, not feeling like you are going to belong. But when you dig a little deeper into what these characters were going through, you notice that their struggles are much more relatable than they might seem at first. The eunuch's struggle is a struggle with fruitlessness. Will my life make a difference? No matter how much effort I put in, I only have these 80 years to live with, and nobody is going to come after me who's going to carry on my name, carry on my work. And if you're alive in the modern world, you know that fruitlessness is something that we struggle with all the time. I work, I work, I work, and then the thing that I work so hard on basically never gets picked up by my boss. It goes off to the wayside. I say the same thing over and over and over again to my children, and they never, ever listen. You spend all this time making Christmas magical, and they think a fat man in a suit did it all for them, and you go, this is awful. Is this what life is about. My life, will it have meaning at the end of the day? The foreigner struggles with a similar thing. He wonders, am I going to be accepted? And the struggle here is, no matter how far up you go in the world, even if you become the CEO of your company, the moment you walk into an elevator with a bag of food, the people inside think you're the delivery guy. And so you always wonder, no matter what I do, will this place ever accept me. Now we know that these struggles are not just inside of the mind of the eunuch or the foreigner. Deuteronomy chapter 23 talks about people who are excluded from God's assembly and explicitly mentions the eunuch saying they will never be a part of God's assembly and it says that certain foreigners are forbidden or at the best held off at a distance and will not be allowed to enter into the temple courts. Later on, Isaiah talks about the temple, and the temple is arranged like concentric circles. In the middle is the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest can go there once a year. Outside of that are the priests, outside of that is Israel, outside of that are women, and at the furthest edge are Gentiles. They are the furthest removed away. And so these are not just minor characters, but they are outsiders who are looking in. Why is Isaiah using these outsiders to tell us what to do as we wait? If you look a little further, you see that they are not what they appear. We learn about the eunuch 
that he's not simply somebody who can't have kids, but he keeps the Sabbath, chooses things that pleases God, and holds fast to the covenant. You learn about the foreigner, that he joins himself to the Lord, ministers to the Lord, and loves the name of the Lord. Outwardly, these two might be the last people you think about when you think about who belongs in God's community, but inwardly, they had everything that God valued. It reminds me of like a pineapple or uni. I don't know if you've ever seen what uni looks like when it's um, like in the wild, but it's got all these spikes on it. And I don't know if you've ever seen a pineapple. I'm sure you have, but it's got all these spikes on it. And you've got to be crazy to think like, oh, I'm going to try and crack this thing open and see what's inside. But if you ever had pineapple, I mean, some people don't like pineapple, fine. But if you ever had uni, all of us should like uni, then that is like amazing. It tastes great, right? So outside is awful, but the inside looks great. It reminds me of the movie I saw, um, Rudy, which is based off a true story from 1948. This guy was 5'6", 165 pounds, third out of 14 children, born on the outskirts of Chicago, poor, but he had this desire to play Notre Dame football. He ended up finding out he had dyslexia, but academically and physically, there was no way that he would even attend the college, let alone play. So what does he do? He goes to a nearby college and works at Notre Dame, keeping the grounds. He gets four semesters of straight A's and finally gets accepted into Notre Dame as a 26-year-old. So he's 26, playing with these 18-year-olds. He tries out for the team over and over and over and over again and eventually gets invited onto the practice squad. And on the practice squad, he ends up impressing his coaches, but he's so little. He's a defensive end, and they will never let him play until his very last game against Georgia Tech on November 8, 1975. They let him in. For one last play, he sacks the quarterback. Everybody lifts him up on the shoulders. They go, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And he is able to live out his dream. The story ends well, but when you put yourself in his shoes, you have to wonder about his psychology. He loves something that potentially would never love him back. And he must have thought over and over again, what's the point of doing this All these exercises, all these drills, putting my heart out there, getting damaged, doing these things physically, and I might never get to take hold of my dream. In the same way, the eunuch and the foreigner have devoted themselves to God, and they know in the back of their mind there's a chance that all of this is for nothing. Maybe God does not have enough grace for somebody like me. So Isaiah is addressing these disappointed exiles who finally are able to return home. And he starts a story with these two because these two tell us what we should do with our time as we are waiting. By the end of this section of Isaiah, the outsiders are brought to God's mountain in front of his altar in his house, which he calls a house of prayer. And first, when we hear the phrase house of prayer, It might be a very unexciting thing to hear about. A lot of us, as we're growing up, we think of prayer as something you do before you go to sleep or something you do before you eat. And she's not here, so I'll say this, but sometimes I dread um, asking Arlo to pray for uh, meals because she prays for so long. (laughs) She goes on for hours talking about, let's pray for this person, that person. The food is getting cold. I'm getting hungry. So I'm like, amen, amen, amen. And then, you know, I have to check my heart. So maybe some of us know, like, okay, prayer is this kind of thing. And she's a much better uh, person than I am, I guess you could say. Some of us know about prayer because we think of it as a spiritual exercise. 
And this last month, I've been trying to get in the habit of exercising, working on my deadlifts and my squats and my benches until I pulled my uh, back. So the exercise is finished. But we think of prayer as a version of exercise. God, I'm out of shape spiritually. I just got to pray a little bit. And in the modern world, something very strange has happened. A book was published in the 1950s called Prayer, A Conversation with God, which is a great way to think about it. But conversations are casual. We kind of jump in and jump out whenever we feel like it. When we look at this eunuch, and when we look at this foreigner, and we look at what they thought about prayer, prayer was not some habit that they did. It was not a little thing they said before they went to bed. Prayer was not this thing that they just thought they should do to get better spiritually. Prayer was a place where they brought their deepest longing, their deepest desires, their deepest doubts. If you look at what the eunuch says to himself as he approaches the temple, he says, will I always just be a dry tree? Will my life matter? If you look at what the foreigner said, he says, will God keep me separate from his people? Will I ever belong? For them, prayer is not a mental exercise or a formality or a polite conversation. Prayer is something deeper And when you look in the book of the Psalms, you notice that there's a phrase that usually goes with prayer, and it's called a crying out. And when you cry out in prayer, you're not just sitting back, lean back, kind of just letting your thoughts flow. You are groaning from your spirit, and you're going, God! 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 And you are trying to get to this, uh, like, deep part of yourself and saying, God! This is who I am. This is what I am struggling with. This is why life is so hard. Do you have enough grace for somebody like me? And the eunuch and the foreigner are praying. They are doing this. They're saying, God, is my life going to matter when it's finished? God, are you going to accept me even though you said you wouldn't? And it's interesting that God chooses house of prayer as the final thing that he wants the temple to be. It could be house of sacrifice, right? It could be house of worship. It could be house of word. And we think about the church, a lot of us think of it as a house of sermons or a house for our children to learn good things or even a house that extends mercy. But if you don't have prayer, if you don't connect to God, a sermon is just some interesting points. Children's ministry is a code of ethics. Mercy is a band-aid on a dying world. Jesus says this is a house of prayer because if we don't connect to him and say, God, I need you, then what are we doing? He calls us and invites us every single week to say, I want to hear what's at the center of you. I want to hear your deepest thing. And we are like, um, like so casual with it. When you move on with this verse, you notice there's this surprising result. As the eunuch and the foreigner spend time in the temple, in this house of prayer, something surprising happens. Usually after prayer, you anticipate some kind of miraculous result. The eunuch, after he prays, you would be be able to expect, oh, he's going to have kids, just like Sarah and Hannah had kids. The foreigner, you would expect his skin to be transformed like the leper's skin, and suddenly he'd be Jewish, and now he belongs. But instead, we get something else. To the eunuch in verse 5, he says, I will give in my house and in my walls a monument and a name 
Better than sons and daughters, I will give you an everlasting name. That shall not be cut off. Um, I think, you know, most of us, uh, a lot of us here have kids and we live for our kids. But that's not the highest thing. That's not the most important thing. God loves us, kids, no kids. And the thing that we leave behind is not our kids, but this monument in the house of prayer with our name on it, where God says to us, your life matters. The work you put in matters. I will establish the work of your hands and carry it through by the power of my Holy Spirit. He does not give the eunuch kids. He gives him a name that will never be erased. For the foreigner, he accepts his sacrifices on the altar where only priests are supposed to go, and he makes him joyful in the house of prayer. Proof that God accepts even people who are far away. You know, in a week we're going to celebrate um, Christmas, and in Luke chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus entering this very temple that Isaiah is talking about for the first time in his life as a tiny little <laughs> baby. And as he's waiting there, these two old people do these strange things. My grandma used to visit from Korea and do these weird things with babies. We'd be in line at the Baltimore Aquarium waiting to get in, and she'd see random babies standing in line with them and grab them and be like, oh, and then start bouncing them around and handing them back. And you have the same thing here. Mary and Joseph bring this baby in, and this old man picks up the baby and starts looking at him, and I'd be a little, like, scared. When you find out this old man is named Simeon, and he's on the verge of death, but through prophecy he knows he will not die until he has seen the Lord's salvation. Another person stops by and sees the baby. It's this woman, Anna. She's 84 years old. She got married very young, probably at the age of 15. She was only married for seven years, so let's call it probably around the age of 22. And then she was widowed. So from the age of 22 to 84, she lived alone. Somebody who's good at math can probably do this. It's 62 years. For 62 years, she is in the temple praying day and night. And as Sam mentioned, Malachi ended and there's 400 years of silence. For the last 60 years of that silence, this widow is in the temple day and night saying, I hope I get to see him. 60 years. And um, a lot of us have this uh, model in our minds because we saw our parents and our grandparents praying. And we're like, what are they praying about? Why are they praying so hard? And what is going to happen to these two when Jesus comes into their midst? He doesn't make Simeon younger and say, oh, now I'll give you more years of life so you can enjoy yourself. He doesn't give Anna, her husband, back. He lets them see his salvation in this tiny child. And Simeon says, Lord, now you're letting your servant die in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When we pray, I mean, come on, we're all human. It's hard to pray, right? But when we pray and we get to that place where we say, God, this is who I am, sometimes we don't get that like, deep thing that we want, but we get something better. We get him. Every week, we gather together, just like the eunuch and the foreigner, every Sabbath, and we spend time in prayer, and it's so hard. You're just like, kid, be quiet. Um, 
what are we going to eat for lunch? Shoot, I forgot to order the groceries, and uh, they're not going to come in time, and then meal prep's going to be off, and we're going to have to spend more money tonight, and then the budget's going to be off. All this stuff like passes through your mind as we're sitting here in prayer. My encouragement to you is, as we're in this in-between time, Christmas is coming in a week, find some time to spend in prayer and get as deep as you can get. God, this is where I'm at. Will you meet with me? So we have a little bit of time. It's like 11.20. So maybe we'll just spend like five minutes just praying like that um, before we worship together. So wherever you're at, um, just allow God to meet with you. Spend some time in prayer. Think about how you can pray more during the season. Um, and then uh, we'll worship together.